Welcome to the newest addition to the Compliance Podcast Network, Survive and Thrive, a podcast co-hosted by Tom Fox, the Compliance Evangelist, and Courtney Nordrum, Regulatory Counsel and Chief Compliance Officer at Deluxe. This season on Survive and Thrive, we're talking about compliance disasters, which befell companies because they weren't looking at the right clues, had their collective heads in the sand, or did not expect the unexpected. If you want to know how to prepare for and avoid disasters from the compliance perspective, this podcast series is the podcast series for you. Survive and Thrive. Hello, everyone. Uh, This is Tom Fox. Welcome to Survive and Thrive, a podcast where we unpack compliance crises and disasters, walking you through all the red flags which appear and give you lessons learned going forward. I'm your co-host, Tom Fox. And I'm Courtney Nordrum, Regulatory Counsel and Chief Compliance Officer at Deluxe. This season on Survive and Thrive, we're talking about compliance disasters, unpleasant situations companies found themselves in because they weren't looking for the right clues, they had their collective heads in the sand, or they hadn't yet figured out how to expect the unexpected. Today's episode is about avoiding the disaster in the first place, namely having budget and budgeting for your compliance function. Well, Courtney, you are about to take some time off, so I thought it would be a very good time not to have an emergency. And <laughs> Much appreciated. So that perhaps uh, uh, one of the most important functions in any corporate discipline is budgeting. And I don't think it's something that we really talk about in conferences and literature, you know, thought leaders, uh, about this process, yet it's something that every compliance officer, every CCO has to do. And, and really everyone down the compliance chain, because you're going to be asked for input no matter you know what level you are. So I thought maybe we today could talk about the nuts and bolts of not only being a CCO, but actually the budgeting process. So uh, let me just throw out some questions and you can start where you think it's appropriate, but how do you begin to prepare? What kind of documentation do you consider? What kind of documentation do you prepare? Is your budget a part of a larger uh, department? If so, what does that mean? Now, if I could maybe contrast your regular budgeting process with a special project, such as a code of conduct makeover, a major tech upgrade, or perhaps bringing in an external party to do a comprehensive risk assessment every every couple of years, or you know, unfortunately, an unexpected expense, uh, which might uh, come up from either all the way from a violation to simply a report that you have to bring in outside experts to to take a look at. Do you present that information to the board? If so, uh, what do they want to hear? Do you overprepare? Do you underprepare? Where do you really think, how, how, I guess, how do you start this process? And could you walk us through the Courtney process? Sure. So the, the first thing I you have to figure out, and it's no matter what, is what is your function going to own as far as budget is concerned? So while compliance has a budget, oftentimes compliance is done on the front line, on the first line. And so many times a lot of compliance pieces are baked into operational or IT budgets. I'm thinking, for example, in my organization, OFAC scanning. So OFAC scanning is a compliance function that I don't think anyone would argue that, but because we use technology to do it, 
and APIs and all of those fun things, our IT actually owns the budget for OFAC scanning. So the first step when you're in an organization and you're starting a budgeting process is to try and figure out what the heck you own. And it's different in every org. So what lives in your budget? What lives in someone else's budget? From there, you're going to want to probably have a conversation with the person to whom you report about what budgeting has looked like in the past. So I live in the legal department. My budget, I have my own budget, my own cost center, but it rolls up to my boss's budget at the end of the day. And so I want to have a conversation with my boss about what budgeting has looked like in the future. It's good to have an understanding of culturally what budgeting looks like at an organization as well. So I've been at organizations where you build a budget and it's straightforward and you get exactly what you've asked for because everyone knows that you're not going to ask for more than you need. I've been at other organizations where everybody inflates their budget by 40% because they're, they know they're only going to get granted 60% of whatever they ask for. So culturally, you should really have an understanding of what your organization does, kind of the rules of the road when budgeting. And then you sit down with your uh, trusty computer and start thinking about the budget as a holistic piece. So because I am wholly risk averse, I go straight to the guidance first. So I want to see what the DOJ, the most recent guidance has said about budgeting. I want to see if there are any cases, if there are any enforcement actions. I want to see what our regulators are saying about budgets, because that's how I'm going to build a baseline of what I need to do. As you know, Tom, you I think you wrote a book on it. Um, the most recent evaluation of corporate compliance programs says you have to be adequately resourced and empowered to function effectively. Um, so that's not helpful at all because <laughs> adequately resourced is not a defined term. Um, and, and what one party may think is adequately resourced may not be adequate for another. So when you're thinking about adequate resources, what you really want to look at is, do you have enough people to run your program the way it needs to be run? Do you have the tools to operate and maintain your program? And then do you have the resources, either people, tools, time, to make continuous improvements? So those three things I think are the bare minimum that you need in your function. And you need to budget for those things so that you can actually have a robust function that regulators would deem adequate. The second part I would do is take a look at my program. So every year we risk assess the program itself. Where are our biggest needs? Where do we need more resources? Are we over-resourced in any areas? Did we think that something was going to be really difficult or really cumbersome or time-consuming and it turns out it's easier than we thought? P.S. That never happens, but maybe someday. Um, and then we want to look at the organization. Have internal operations changed? Have laws or regulations changed? So the Colorado privacy law, that's a big one. We're going to have to start uh, along with all of the other companies, building that compliance for privacy in place. And then are there any new risks that your organization hasn't had before? Did you do M&A? 
Did you enter a new business area that you haven't operated in before? Did you go international? Uh, are, are you transferring data in ways you haven't before? So think about what might be new to the program that you haven't budgeted for in the past or that nobody's budgeted for in the past. So from there, I'm going to get a list of, you know, basic, here's the stuff I'm going to care about this year. And then because compliance is what it is, we're, we're going to look at the messes. So what issues need to be addressed or cleaned up? From our risk assessment, we're going to be able to see where we are, are needing more support, where we need more resources. And that could be because there was an issue or it could be because we're skating on thin ice and don't have an issue, but we're not where we want to be in compliance, hypothetically. Um, so if there are any messes to be cleaned up, I want that to be a separate line item as well. So if we weren't doing OFAC checks, hypothetically, and we needed to do OFAC checks, then I would be working with IT and figuring out how much that's going to cost us, which then speaks to your question. Special projects and improvements. What do we need to improve? What do we need to do to keep ourselves off the naughty list? So that's going to be code of conduct, uh, revamps and refreshments, refreshments, refreshing regularly. That is going to be having an evaluation. You have to have someone else come in and evaluate your program at least every few years because you can't necessarily see that your baby's ugly if your baby's ugly. It's going to be third-party needs that you may not have anticipated. Perhaps you had a hotline call that required additional investigation resources. Maybe you had to have outside counsel help you investigate. These sort of things are, in my budget at least, called out specifically. So when I'm taken to task for my budget, every single dollar is budgeted and it's a very detailed list. And I think that that is because people aren't used to compliance spending money yet. We know we're a cost sink. Um, we know that many in our business, many of our business partners think about us as where money goes and then we just tell them no in exchange. As compliance professionals, we know that's not how it really works, but we're not proactively making money for the organization. So for me, it's going to start triggering how I'm going to think about turning what I'm doing and what I'm asking for into ROI. And that to me is part of the influencing and the relationship building that you need to do in the budgeting process along the way. What can be- Courtney, could, uh, could I stop you there? Sure. You said something I thought was really interesting and it was really culture. And that not only is there a culture around budgeting, but budgeting is a part of your culture. And then you talked about uh, really give, having an opportunity to not only meet and greet, but actually sit down with your other department heads to uh, not only uh, figure out joint funding, perhaps, but also see what their needs might be and how you could actually uh, 
increased business efficiency or or even ROI. I was wondering if you could maybe give a couple exa- of examples of when you sat down and, and had those conversations about uh, uh, if compliance is more efficient, your business process will be more efficient. You can respond to risks and manage risks more quickly and you can make more money. Right. So one of the things that has been uh, a great partnership for us and my organization is the privacy policies and terms and conditions on websites. So this was an example of where I came together with IT and IT would normally own the websites and I'm going to own the privacy policies if you're looking at an org chart. But we came together and I said, you're doing website updates all the time. Whenever you're about to push something out, let me know. We'll make sure the privacy policy is, is what it needs to be done. So it costs them nothing from their budget. It costs me nothing from my budget. And we keep the wheels on the bus as far as compliance is concerned. As I'm trying to think of a a way to show ROI. So that one's not a direct (laughs) ROI. But one of the ones that is, is a, uh, hmm. I'm trying to think of a good example that's applicable to a lot. So I I think in the reverse with ROI, Um, a lot of times I think of, and I I don't think I'm alone on this, what we're going to avoid if we do this right in the beginning. So we can point out the naughty list. We can point out what others have gotten wrong and the fines and the results, the monitors and all of that from not doing it the way it should be done. And there's ROI there. But from a a sales perspective, we've also, oh, I just thought of one. We implemented an auto renewal and subscription fix. So people may or may not know, a handful of states have really strict specific auto renewal laws. Vermont is really very strict, as are the Netherlands. And when we went to our business partners and said, hey, you have to develop to make sure, you know, this disclosure is at least this big a font and it's within this amount of space of this and this and this, that was a giant headache for everyone involved. But on the back end, it turns out that customers are happier with the experience and we're having far, far fewer chargebacks because people understand what they're getting into up front. And they're proactively saying, yes, please charge my credit card. And so for doing that, we're getting happier customers who are more likely to come back and continue buying from us. And we're reducing our chargebacks, which can be costly and resource heavy to do. And so working together to get things cleaned up is really, I think, important. And it gets you in on the operational level as a compliance professional. So the um, now you are uh, in the Q3 of 2021. You're back from your time off, and you attend a conference. It may be SCCE, it may be Conversant, it may be ACI, uh, and you see some really cool stuff. Uh, Ronnie Feldman has a new uh, compliance messaging series. Uh, someone else has a new third-party platform. Uh, somebody else has a great conflict of interest tool. 
how do you think through approaching kind of a new project? It may not be an absolute need, but it's really cool stuff. How do you internally sell that and then think through that part of a budget budgeting process? So I, I think that gets back to, to culture as well and the relationships that you have in the organization. In my organization, it's important to get buy-in from other segments, not just the segment I live in, not just shared services. It's not Courtney wants a tool so she can play in the sandbox, yada, yada, yada. It's Courtney wants a tool so her people don't have to do X, Y, and Z so they can spend more time helping you make sales compliantly. And so we, we have to turn everything into here's how it benefits us making money. And that's what I have to do for when I want something fun. Um, I oftentimes will put in my budget one or two new tools or subscriptions that we could really, really use. So not getting them is not going to hurt my program, but getting them would definitely help my program. It would make life easier. This is my wish list, right? And depending on the budget that we have as an organization, sometimes I get it, sometimes I don't. But when I'm doing that, I am also going around to my friends in the business. I'm going around to the ELT members, my boss, and I'm planting seeds of here's why this tool is helpful. Here's why compliance needs more budget. Here's why it's not a waste of money to give me more budget. And so I'm building allies throughout the organization so that when it comes down to it and the 12 ELT members in our organization, which in, in my organization, that's who kind of get into a room and, and duke it out for dollars. There's some of them that are on my side and they understand that it's not just a sinkhole where we throw dollars. So to me, that's really important to show my friends in the organization and my partners why I need things and how life would be easier and in turn how that translates to helping them make more money or helping them just have more time and energy. You've said several interesting things that I wanted to follow up on. First of all, you must be around either a lot of young children or something because you've talked about being on the naughty list the wheels on the bus and playing in the sandbox. Oh, so uh, perhaps you are getting ready for some time off. Uh, but the other thing is you actually tied the budget process to your risk assessment. And, and almost it sounded like to me, thinking through a risk assessment to continuous monitoring, to continuous improvement, the budget process is a part of that thought process for you. I was wondering if you might be able to really expand upon how you see the risk assessment as a part of the budget process, because I had not heard those two connected previously. Absolutely. So when we do our risk assessments, we are going to find things that are going really well, and we're going to find things that are going not good at all. And so when we find the things that aren't going so well, we need to fix them. Very rarely is that fix free as far as resources and dollars go. So when we're doing our risk assessment, we generally do our risk assessment. We, we're starting this week, actually, on our enterprise risk assessment for the year. And that's in preparation so that when budgeting starts, we know where the deficiencies are. 
And so we can address specific risks with our budget asks. And to me, it made sense because I, uh, my first year as the CCO, I didn't create the budget. I inherited the budget of my predecessor. And so I was really just catching up and trying to figure out what's going on. What does this mean? What does this mean? Do we need this X, Y, Z? And in, in doing that, I realized that there wasn't a lot of documentation as to why budget decisions were made. And when I had the opportunity to then create a budget for the next year, I wanted to make sure that it was tied to something real. And so we start with our risk assessment. We identify the big needs and the big risks, and then we make sure we have the money to fix that. The smaller the risk, the less, uh, uh, less hard I'm going to push for big dollars to get it fixed. So to me, they go hand in hand. And, and it could be because we don't really have a slush fund. There's not a, a pile of money somewhere that I can dip into. I don't have a rich uncle who, who works here who can just give me unlimited funds. And so I, uh, I wanna make sure that I'm using the dollars I have to address the biggest risks and to do so in a way that protects my organization the best we can. What does... Uh the board ask you for? Do they ask for significant documentation, some documentation, no documentation? Do they feel like by the time a budget request gets to their level, it's been fully vetted? What's what's that part of your process like? So in my organization, and, and I can only speak for what we do, by the time the board sees it, it's, my budget is rolled up into my boss's budget, which is an administrative function. So it is real estate and global procurement and environmental and a whole bunch of other things all rolled into one. So they don't necessarily see the individual line items for compliance. But when I go through the risk assessment with the board, that's my opportunity to say, hey, we found this risk. That's why I'm asking for these dollars. We found this. That's why I'm asking for this. Hey, guess what? There's this really great tool that can increase increase efficiency and make life much easier. I just want to sneak into this conversation how that tool could help us manage these two risks more efficiently. And so while they don't have to approve my budget as a line item, I still am always communicating as to I don't want to say the legitimacy of what I'm asking for, but I want them to understand why I'm asking for what I do ask for, because I create everything with the thought that the board's going to see it and, and review it. And so if I got called to the mat to defend my budget, I can defend my budget to the board. I can defend it to anyone who asks. And so I'm constantly planting those seeds legitimizing why I'm asking for the dollars I'm asking for um, along the way, all year round, actually. Uh, when I heard you say that, what popped into my head was really the, uh, it's an educational process. And it's you educating the board, not simply on our risk, not simply on our risk management strategy, but the tools we're going to bring and the tools we might need to bring uh, for future risks or current risk, so that it's an ongoing dialogue, but it's really an educational dialogue as well. Would that be a fair assessment? 
Uh, I think that's very, very accurate. We're always educating, I think, everyone around us 360 on compliance because what, we're 23, 24 years into compliance as a function, as a, as a profession, and we're going up against hundreds of years of, of lawyers and doctors and accountants and all of this. So people don't understand what we do or, or why we do it. And sometimes we ask for a lot of zeros in our budget. And so when we're doing that, we're educating people to say, hey, this doesn't look like it's going to save you money, but is going to save you money. And, and if all else fails, then you bring out the big guns, which is the worst case scenarios. And you put your Excel spreadsheet out and you look at enforcement actions and you say, here are the things that companies our size in our industry are getting dinged for. And here are all the ways we could get dinged, hypothetically, assuming you've identified some risks. Bring that straight into the highest level you can get it into and scare them into giving you money, hopefully, if you have to. That's not a tactic I, I prefer, but I have also found that it is quite um, effective. If, if you can draw correlations, it, it can be effective, but that's a hammer. And, and you don't want to use that hammer unless you absolutely have to. Courtney, we're near the end of our time, but I was wondering if there are some, uh, maybe some key lessons learned or other pithy comments in addition to the wheels on the bus and staying off the naughty list and even playing in the sandbox that you might be able to sort of share with us. So um, I have a six-year-old nephew. He just graduated kindergarten. And so that's probably why I talk like a first grader. Um, shout out to Declan. And, but the lessons learned for me are there aren't any hard and fast rules about budgeting for a compliance department. There's no manual that says this is what you have to do. But as compliance professionals, as CCOs, it is on us. And sometimes personal liability attaches to make sure that your function is adequately resourced. So if you are under-resourced, it is your job to make enough noise that the C-suite and the board realize what risks underfunding will bring to the organization. That's not to say they're always going to give you the money because I don't know a single compliance person who I've ever spoken with who has said, yes, I have all the budget I want and need. Doesn't exist. Nobody does. But the C-suite, the board, the senior leadership need to fully understand what risks you're trying to impact and what risks you are trying to mitigate and why and how those dollars tie directly into mitigating those risks. Well, Courtney, we have a rallying cry for today's podcast, which is comes to us from David Barnes, which says, don't see it as a budgeting exercise. It's all about management excellence. So that wraps us up. Courtney, Courtney you want to take us home? Sure. Join us again for our next episode of Survive and Thrive. And I might talk like an adult that time, next time. No promises. Have you ever wanted to start a podcast? Do you have an idea which you think would be helpful to the compliance community? Do you have a great story to tell? If any of these are true, why don't you start a podcast and put it on the Compliance Podcast Network? 
I have partnered with One Stone Creative to create a end-to-end solution for you to tell your story on the Compliance Podcast Network. If you have questions, please email me at tfox at tfoxlaw.com. I hope you've enjoyed this podcast. And more importantly, I hope you will tell your story with your podcast on the Compliance Podcast Network.